So today we'll be looking at Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 49. The title of the sermon is, He Opened Their Understanding. As usual, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'll read from verse 25 through to the end of the book of Luke, verse 53. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Word of God. And please give your close attention because this is God's holy and infallible Word. Then He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and He indicated that He would have gone farther. But they constrained Him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And He went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as He sat at the table with them, that He took bread blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the Scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet that it is I myself Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And the repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name. To all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated.
So we saw last week that those nail-scarred hands of Christ picked up bread and, not bread, fish and honeycomb and ate it there in the presence of His disciples. It was Jesus Himself, it was His body, physical, human body and soul that God the Father brought back to life. Remember, all man, all God, Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. In today's text, we see Him teaching them what is to come. Referencing Scripture about Him. And encouraging them in the task ahead of them. And the power they would receive to complete the task. And as we move into the book of Acts, we will see the disciples obeying Christ and doing these exact things. Preaching repentance and remission of sins starting at Jerusalem unto the entire world. And you sit here today, I'm here with you today, as those who are the recipients of that work of God in this earth. As the disciples went forth and preached, the pebble fell in the pond, and those beautiful ripples are still graciously flowing over us. And will flow to all the world. And we will see the glory of Christ more and more revealed as repentance is more extensively experienced by the people of God, by the church of God, and by this world. Unto obedience to Christ in every realm of life. Preaching repentance within the context of the kingdom of God. And the remission of sins that is ours as the forgiven people of God. We're going to look at the setting first. Trying to answer the question, when did this event occur? Where did it occur? And then we'll go through the text. We'll look at this simple teaching that all things from Scripture must be fulfilled. And that Jesus opened up their eyes to comprehend the Scriptures. Before He had opened the Scriptures to them. And now... He opens their minds to the Scriptures. Again, we see the necessity of the things that occurred and that are occurring for the Messiah to be crucified and resurrected. Those historical events upon which all of our preaching is based. And then for remission of sins and for repentance to be preached to all the nations by His witnesses. And the outpouring of His Spirit upon His people unto the accomplishment of this task. And we are a part of this now. And we see the beginnings of this in today's text. So, about the setting, Bach says, the absence of a specific chronological note makes it possible that this event is later, especially given the thematic repetitions in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So, as as we're reading through Luke, we might uh, just assume what we're reading today also took place there in the midst of uh, Resurrection Day. Uh, But it appears as though that's not the case. So when and where does this event occur? It seems most likely, especially when we look at the clues in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, which we'll look at, that the events uh, from today's text, verses 44 through 49, occurred on the day of His ascension. 
During the 40 days between our Lord's resurrection and his ascension, the Bible tells us that he was in Galilee for some time with his disciples before coming back to the Jerusalem area and then to Bethany for his ascension. In addition to looking at Acts verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 today, we're going to take a brief walk through the events of those 40 days in next week's sermon. So next week's sermon, we'll kind of back away from Luke a little bit, but we'll look at the biblical examples given to us of these infallible proofs, these many infallible proofs that Luke references when he writes. So if you look closely at verses 1 through 3 of uh, Acts chapter 1, it appears that verses 1 through 3 are referencing the 40-day time frame. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. So this appears to be primarily prior to his crucifixion and resurrection. Verse 3, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So what we see here is that Jesus presented himself alive to his apostles by many infallible proofs and that Jesus was seen by his apostles during this 40-day time frame and that Jesus was speaking of the kingdom of God during this 40-day time frame. These are the things emphasized by Luke in Acts 1. Now, on the 40th day, the ascension day, it appears as though verses 4 through 11 are centered around the ascension day. And they teach us uh, through the similarities about today's text and when and where it happened. As we look at this text, we'll see much similarity. And I want to point out over on page 3 of your sermon notes, there was a mistake there. Um, if you look at um, section F on the ascension, look at your notes, you'll see. Uh, 1, 2, and 3 there under F are actually supposed to be up under section D. And I'm going to refer to those as I get to it, okay? And you'll see why. So starting at uh, verse 4 in chapter 1 of Acts. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so this is where you need to refer down below. Verse 4, we see these words, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. We see how familiar this is to Luke 24, verse 49, the first half. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem. And then in verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. See how similar that is to verse 49, the second half, until you are endued with power from on high. So you begin to see how this is very well could be the same event when they're talking, presented in two different ways by Luke. Verse 8, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's in Acts chapter 1. And then, of course, in verse 47 and 48 of today's text, we see and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. So, for those reasons, it appears as though today's text takes place on that 40th day, the day of ascension. We don't know that for sure, 
It certainly looks like it because right after this, next week we'll see, comes, no, not next week, in two weeks, the, the immediately ensuing text we see the ascension. And you'll see there in point E in your notes the events of the 40 days that we're going to look at next week. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, that he was seen by 500 all at once. He was seen by James and by all the apostles and then by Paul last of all. And then in John 20, we'll look at the event with Thomas uh, on the eighth day after the resurrection. And then in John 21, we'll look there when they're beside the Sea of Tiberias, which is uh, up in the, in the Galilee area. The Sea of Tiberias is the Sea of Galilee, which is called by a different name. Mark 16, we'll look at uh, the Great Commission there. And Mark also includes an ascension account. You'll notice that Matthew does not and John does not include an ascension account. But Mark and Luke do. And we'll also next week look at Matthew 28, uh, what we all know as the Great Commission, which occurs in Galilee. So that'll be next week. And we'll just kind of try to get a good feel in our minds of what the Scriptures teach us about these infallible proofs that Luke references. It seems as though with Luke referencing, it would be good for us to have a, a sense of what the Scriptures teach on those infallible proofs as we're moving into the book of Acts. So verse 44, and then of course, as I said, in two weeks we'll look at the ascension. And you'll see the similarity there in Acts 1, giving us the ascension, and in Luke 24, giving us the ascension. So we'll do similar to what we've done today. We'll bring those two texts together. So now, today's text. Probably ascension day, probably in the Jerusalem area. Okay? All things must be fulfilled. Verse 44 says, Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So we see here that Christ is again referencing his pre-crucifixion teaching, like what the angels did with the women at the tomb, right? What Jesus teaches them here, it's not new teaching. He had taught them this before. He gives his disciples multiple teachings on this same topic. Bach says, in this meeting, Jesus mentions that he had spoken of such fulfillment before his death. And you see there the list of verses in chapter 9, uh, verse 22 and 44, chapter 17, verse 25, chapter 18, chapter 22, multiple times. Jesus had already taught them these truths. And a question comes to mind here, how do you respond to repetition in Scripture, in, in preaching? When you go through Scripture and you see the same thing, do you tend to just try to skip to the end, oh, I already know this? Or do you take the time to read it again, knowing that we need the repetition? Jesus says to them that all things must be fulfilled. This word must here uh, gets to the writings of the prophet of God in Holy Scriptures, and it teaches us that there's a necessity. When God gives a prophet... When he inspires the writing of a prophet and it's put down in Scripture, it will be fulfilled according to God's foreordained plan, according to his perfect timing. It will come to pass. Now, if the disciples had known the Scriptures and believed the necessity of their fulfillment, not a maybe, not dependent upon anything that we would say or do, but dependent upon his foreordained power and will, if they had done this and believed it, They would not have struggled so much during his time of suffering. They would not have struggled so much in their own time of suffering. So there's a question there for us. Do we understand how important it is 
to know God's word and to believe it. Matthew 5, 17 and 18 speaks to us of this necessity. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the, or the prophets. So Jesus is speaking here. Sermon on the Mount. Shortly after the Beatitudes. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For surely I say to you till heaven and earth pass away. One jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Jesus mentions all things. There's a a detailed, sequential nature to God's word and his prophecies. He has a process that he is taking this world through. And it will be fulfilled according to his timing in his way. And neither our sin or the institutions that hate him or the demons of hell can do one thing to thwart the plan that he has already written. Amen. So we laugh, right? Like God in heaven, we laugh as we face the evils of our own heart and of this day. Matthew Henry says, Christ had given them this general hint for the regulating of their expectations that whatever they found written concerning the Messiah in the Old Testament must be fulfilled in him. What was written concerning his sufferings as well as what was written concerning his kingdom. These God had joined together in the prediction and it could not be thought that they should be put asunder in the event. All things must be fulfilled, even the hardest even the heaviest, even the vinegar. He could not die till he had that because not till then could he say, it is finished. So, we, like Christ, submit to the details of the sequence that God has planned for our lives. And it's very important that we see that as we take up the cross that he's given to us, that we have details to go through as well. And that we would go through it in faith and confidence as more than conquerors. Look at this phrase here, which were written. You see that? The idea of written is put there in the text for us. God preserves his written word to his people. He preserves it. Every jot and tittle. This is the doctrine of the preservation of scripture. And it's not up to human scholarship. Or monks in a cave from the 4th century. He uses these things. It's up to him. And he says that he will preserve his word for his church. Through all generations. God treasures his word. So as not to leave his word to memory or or oral traditions, what silliness, uh, over generations. This is what the Gnostics will teach. No. Christians go to the written word of God. So what we have here is is an obvious extension of this, is that Christians and their families and their cultures will be highly literate. We will be readers. We will make sure that the ability to read and comprehend the written word is an essential aspect 
of the education that we provide to our children and that we help to provide to one another. Cultures without the gospel have little concern for that which is written. Along these lines, remember the scriptures were written in Hebrew in the Old Testament with a few sections in Aramaic and the New Testament in Greek. So brothers and sisters, this commends to our study some basic familiarity with these languages. In our home, you're not going to get your graduation certificate from the Clark Christian School if you don't study some Greek and some Hebrew. Do you make use of a Hebrew and Greek lexicon as you study the scriptures? It's so easy. It's so available. It's for this reason that uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones questioned the necessity of even preachers needing to know the original languages because it's so accessible to us today, these lexicons and these ways to get to the meaning in the original text. Next, Jesus speaks of the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So brothers and sisters, right here, Jesus, Jesus specifically refers again to the prophecies about himself, like he had done on the road to Emmaus. And these are present in the Torah. That's the section that he calls the law of Moses. The prophets and the Psalms. And so as I said before, this commends to us a study of these Old Testament scriptures about Christ our Lord. Since the last time I preached on this, I found what appears to be a helpful text that's written about this, a good book called The Messiah in the Old Testament by Walter Kaiser. So have you ever done this kind of study? Have you ever taken the time to, as you study the Old Testament, to look for Christ and to search for him? Because the text says here, concerning me, Jesus is telling us that there are Old Testament texts there about him. And really, even bigger than that, that he is the central theme of Scripture. Bach says, Jesus is the topic of Scripture. The events of his life are thus no surprise to us. They are in continuity with what God revealed throughout the Scripture. It is fair to say that Jesus sees himself and his career outlined in the sacred texts of the Old Testament. For Luke, Jesus is proclaimed through prophecy and pattern. So when we look to the Old Testament, we are told by Jesus to look to Christ and his life to understand the Old Testament. And we will find Christ there as we look for him. Do you search for Christ when you read the Old Testament? Is that a key part of your thinking as you read the Old Testament? Do you know those scriptures? Could you at least give the address of a couple of those scriptures in the Old Testament that are about Jesus. And in this, there's also this great joy of using the New Testament as the commentary for the Old Testament. So as you're reading the Old Testament, anytime there's a connection, a quote, or an allusion to the New Testament, you're always bringing the New Testament scripture back in to understand the Old Testament. So as we're looking at the Old Testament and we're trying to find that perfect commentary to understand it, start with Jesus. 
Then maybe go to Paul. And then maybe Peter. Start there to understand your Old Testament. What happens next? Well, he tells them about himself in the Old Testament, but then he goes on to open their understanding so that they comprehended the Scriptures. So not only did he open the Scriptures to them, but he opened their mind, their minds to the Scripture. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Such an amazing event in such simple words. Can you open someone's mind to the Scriptures? I, it, I would say it's, it's conceivable that an unbeliever could open the Scriptures to our mind. Going into the meaning of the text and bringing out the meaning of the text. Just bringing that meaning out to somebody, that's opening the Scripture to them. But only Christ can open our minds to the Scripture. Something new happens here. The message is not new, brothers and sisters. He's given them this message. But Christ's reference to his prior words, to the Old Testament Scripture, it's not new. He's taught them this before. But this moment is the appointed time for his disciples to understand and comprehend the Scriptures. All of the times that we've been going through Luke, and we've been talking about what blockheads they are, (laughs) and we've been laughing because we're the same way, This is the moment when all of that is done. What a moment. Yes, we can share the scripture with others. We can share the words of Christ. But only Christ can open minds to understand and comprehend the scriptures. There's no preacher like Jesus. He's the only preacher that always presents the word perfectly and opens the minds of the hearers as they listen. Matthew Henry says, by an immediate present work upon their minds of which they themselves could not but be sensible, he gave them to apprehend the true intent and meaning of the Old Testament prophecies about Christ and to see them all fulfilled in him. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scripture. In his discourse with the two disciples, he took the veil from off the text by opening the scriptures. Here he took the veil from off the heart by opening their mind. So what was their greatest need at that moment? It was to know the scriptures. And in that, to know Christ. And and it's worth noting here. Think about this. Note how Christ, fully divine, Right there in their presence, the perfect man, deserving their honor and their praise and their focus, their full attention upon him. He points to the Old Testament scriptures about himself. Think of this. Many people try to divide Christ from his word. When we go to God's worth, God's word, with faith, we go and we hear the voice of Christ himself. He's not pointing us away from himself. He's not pointing his disciples away from himself when he points them 
to his word. The tangible presence of Christ for us is found in scripture's eternal words. It's why we can sing like we did from Psalm 119 that his word is the greatest treasure to us. Matthew Henry says, the design of opening the understanding is that we may understand the Scriptures, not that we may be wise above what is written, but that we may be wiser in what is written and may be made wise to salvation by it. The Spirit in the Word and the Spirit in the heart say the same thing. Christ's scholars never learn above their Bibles in this world. But they need to be learning still more and more out of their Bibles and to grow more ready and mighty in the Scriptures. That we may have right thoughts of Christ and have our mistakes concerning Him rectified. There needs no more than to be made to understand the Scriptures. Will we ever value the Scriptures enough? Will our lives ever express rightly the treasure that is the Word of God to us? It is very, very true that every problem that we have can be traced back to at least in part an insufficient knowledge and belief in God's Word. So do you pray and ask the Father in Heaven to both open the Scriptures and open your mind to Scriptures? What a great prayer before you read the Word. Father in Heaven, in Jesus' name, would you open your Word to us and would you open our mind to understand what's written here? It's so easy, isn't it, to just get into a routine and forget the treasure that is ours in the pages of Scripture. So going on, Jesus brings them to the thus statement, the hence moment, the so here it is. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. There's Jesus' life. Right there, life, death, resurrection. And that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. There's your table of contents for the book of Acts. That's everything that we're about to see going on in the book of Acts. And that if we look closely, we will see is going on in our own lives today as Christians. Note the repetition about the necessity of fulfillment of Scripture. Written is also repeated again. So Christ emphasizes for us via repetition the importance of his disciples understanding the absolute necessity of scriptural fulfillment. God has spoken so the future from his mouth is as sure as the past. So what he's telling them about the future is as sure as what they've seen on the cross and at the resurrection, and in that very moment. Just as sure 
future from God's mouth is, sure as, is as sure as the past. So in a sense, we have faith in the future because God has described what it will look like. So what was necessary? It's, it's beautiful. It's simple. It's expansive. It's jaw-dropping. That it was going to happen and how he was going to do it. <laughs> Same for us today. So first, it was necessary for the Messiah to be crucified and resurrected. For the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. What other way could there be preaching about the remission of sins? If there is no cross, if there is no death of Christ, if there is no atoning sacrifice. There's much written about Christ in the Old Testament, about his birth and his life. We look at a lot of those things during this time in the church calendar. But in this text, Jesus pinpoints the necessity of his suffering and resurrection. He pinpoints here the necessity of the end of his life, the end of his ministry on this earth. Because this historical reality, as we've talked about before, serves as the focal point of preaching, and Christ's resurrection is all of history's turning point. So that's what's going on here. They're turning the corner on all of history right now with this design that God has for this world in Christ and they're going forth and they're preaching it to everyone. Repentance and remission of sins. What else was necessary? Necessary for Christ to be crucified and resurrected. But it's also necessary for repentance and remission of sins to be preached to all nations by His witnesses. And that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. It's not regional. It's not going to be written in the stars. It's global, and they have to use their feet, and chariots, and boats, as we'll read about, and horses, to get the message to the rest of the world. That's how God designed it. All men everywhere are called to repent. So, the necessity of his death and his resurrection lead to the necessity of all men everywhere repenting. In his name, they are to turn away from their false gods. They are to turn away from their sins. And they are to turn back to the one true God, the only living God. So that they'll no longer be like their idols who cannot speak and who cannot smell and who cannot move and who cannot see blind and deaf and mute in their sin like their idols. But they would come to the one true God. But as you know, this repentance cannot occur apart from the cleansing from our sins. Both of these things go hand in hand. The preaching of forgiveness of sin, remission of our sins, and repentance must go together. About repentance, Matthew Henry says, the great gospel duty of repentance must be pressed upon the children of men. Repentance for sin must be preached in Christ's name and by his authority. All men everywhere must be called and commanded to repent. Go and tell all the people that the God that made them and the Lord that bought them expects and requires that immediately upon this notice given, they turn from the worship of the gods that they have made to the worship of the God that made them 
And not only so, but from serving the interests of the world and the flesh, they must turn to the service of God in Christ, must mortify all sinful habits and forsake all sinful practices. Their hearts and lives must be changed and they must be universally renewed and reformed. Repentance is a big deal. It's not a little thing. It defines our life as Christians. Really, repentance is the path God takes us down in our sanctification. It's initial and it's ongoing. What is sanctification? It is the work of God's free grace. Oh, does this sound familiar, children? Children, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the, if you can say it with me if you remember. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Christ is becoming your king in everything. Repentance all the way to the end. And it shows up not just in the state of your heart, not just in the words that come from your mouth, not just in how you spend your time, but it also shows up in the vision that you have for your family, for your church, for your community, and for this world. Repentance, taken to its fullest application, looks like the whole world on its face, worshiping Christ. Next, as a result of Christ's suffering, resurrection, suffering and resurrection, all men everywhere are called to receive remission of their sins in His name. But remission of sins must also be preached alongside repentance. So you can see that when we preach the gospel, we're always preaching repent to the sinner and we're always preaching the forgiveness of sins, the remission of sins to all who call upon the name of the Lord and trust in Christ's death upon the cross for their sins. Matthew Henry says, the great gospel privilege of the remission of sins must be proposed to all and assured to all that repent and believe the gospel. Go, tell a guilty world that stands convicted and condemned at God's bar that an act of indemnity has passed the royal assent, which all that repent and believe shall have the benefit of and not only be pardoned, but preferred by, tell them that there is hope concerning them. When we think about the vastness of our sin and the depths of our selfishness and our depravity, and that's just your heart, (laughs) that's just my heart, (laughs) and then we put that all together, add it up, for all the people of God. It must have been hard for the disciples to imagine that. That the world would repent and that sins would be forgiven for all these people. And really when we talk about the remission of sins, we're talking about that first act, the beginning of our walk with God, our justification. So so think about it the repentance that we go through begins when we come into the kingdom of God. We turn away from our sin. We turn to God. 
But the repentance is always going on. It's always continuing. So it's really tied into not just our initial entry into the kingdom, but our life. Is your life marked by repentance? Remission of sins really tightly connects with justification and our entry into God's kingdom. We are washed, brothers and sisters, once and for all when we come to Christ. We continue to confess our sin to Him because we continue to sin. But it doesn't have to die again. It's finished. What is justification? Say it with me if you know it. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So what happens next? Well, they have to go and tell the world about it. He's telling them what's happening, and now he's telling them how it's going to be taken to the world. This must be preached to all nations in his name, beginning at Jerusalem by his witnesses. Preaching, in its bedrock definition, is verbal presentation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of those who can hear you. Certainly you can preach in writing, you can preach uh, through Zoom, uh, but this here is talking about they've got to go. They have to go to those nations and give them the message. Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. And that's what they did. They're so beautiful. Why, how can there be beautiful feet? Well, because those feet just walked a long way some of them, to bring this great news of the remission of sins and repentance before God and entry into God's kingdom. Matthew Henry says, well, let me, let me go back. Jesus here, he gives his disciples their marching orders. And, and a lot of commentaries that I looked at, they call this the Great Commission in Luke. And I want to be a little careful about that because there, there's various spots in time and locations where this type of commandment is given to the disciples. We can call each of them a great commission if we want to. Go and tell the whole world about repentance and remission of sins in Christ. Go and tell the whole world. Start here. Wait for the disciple. Well, I mean, wait, wait for the Holy Spirit. Terry here in Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit. The disciples had to wait. And then they were supposed to go until the job was done. To get it out to everybody. And not just a little message. This is comprehensive repentance for an all-supreme king. This is complete forgiveness of sins from an all-sufficient Savior. Matthew Henry says that they must preach this among all nations. They must disperse themselves like the sons of Noah after the flood, some one way and some another, and carry this light along with them wherever they go. The prophets had preached repentance and remission to the Jews, but the apostles must, must preach them to all the world. None are exempted from the obligations the gospel lays upon men to repent, nor are any excluded from those inestimable benefits 
which are included in the remission of sins. But those that by their unbelief and impenitency put a bar in their own door. So, think about what the disciples are hearing. They're, they're hearing this comprehensive, global, complete message of repentance and remission of sins. And they're supposed to preach this everywhere. They barely had, it looks like they had some, some fish and honeycomb. How's this, who's going to fund this? I mean, what, what's got to be on their mind? Like, what? No, 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 we're just going to stay together. We're not going to go anywhere. We're just hopefully not going to get killed. No, they're not going to stay together. They're going to disperse all over the world. So Jesus, of course, knows that they're, they've got to be thinking, what? How can this be done? And do you feel that way sometimes too when you look around at the world? The disciples have been made to understand this universal reign of Christ, right? Repent everyone. And the global atonement of Christ, meaning remission of sins preached to everyone, available to everyone. And they don't even have airplanes, right? They don't even have the internet. And they have been given a mission to preach this message message to every nation, every people under heaven. This is a jaw-dropping moment if you think about it, if you just stop and think about it. But there is a resurrected Christ standing in their presence. I can imagine if I'm there, I'm thinking, what? They're going to kill us. And you know what? It's true. Some of them would get killed. But they're going to kill us before we have a chance to complete the mission. Nope. They're not going to listen to us. Some didn't, but many did. We'll be alone. Not really. We'll be weak. No. We'll be inarticulate. No, I'll give you what to say. And Lord, you're leaving. Yep, for your good. So the helper can come. How's this going to happen, Lord? This has got to be what's on their mind. And Jesus said, behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. Tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. We live in the age of Pentecost, brothers and sisters. Mm. Oh, Father in heaven, pour out your spirit upon us, we pray. Upon your church. Upon your people in this earth. Matthew Henry says, It is a vast undertaking that they are here called to a very large and difficult province, especially considering the opposition this service would meet with and the sufferings it would be attended with. If therefore they ask, who is sufficient for these things? Here, Jesus has an answer. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you and you shall be endued with power from on high. He here assures them that in a little time the Spirit should be poured out upon them in greater measures than ever. And they should thereby be furnished with all those gifts and graces which were necessary to their discharge of this great trust and therefore they must tarry at Jerusalem and not enter upon it till this be done. 
this global preaching of this comprehensive kingdom with repentance that would overcome the soul and flow out unto increasing righteousness, the joy of the remission of sins, the destruction of Satan's power over us. Death, where is your state? Then they were given the Spirit. Such a great message from such a great king over such a great creation requires a great helper. And he gave the great helper. Is this your life? Do you feel like your life is marked more by all of those questions that the disciples would have had at that moment? As you look out at the world and the, the vaccine mandates and the polarization and the lies and the deceptions and the brokenness and the lawlessness and the apparent reign of the devil in the earth, and you look out at all of this and you say, come on, please, Pastor Clark. It's just a pipe dream. I think I'll just pack it in. Just hopefully, I'll just be saved when I die. Because see, they were going to go to battle. And they did. And some of them died. Some of them were tortured. They gave up everything for this one great battle. Are you in the battle? Are you going to stay in the battle? Because the Spirit is given. The Spirit is given, and you have a life to live. There will be people in generations to come who will look back on you and your family and this church and what we're doing, and they'll say, thank God for their faithfulness. Like we look back on these disciples and we say, thank you, God, for their faithfulness. You are part of this chain, this linkage, this redemptive, epic, glorious plan of salvation in the earth. I want you to see that. You were brought into that. I want you to feel the momentum of that and be raised up on those waves for greater, more grateful, more joyful service to Jesus Christ as you go through your days. The promise of the Father. Isn't that beautiful? You know, this very likely refers to what's often called the covenant of redemption took place before the world began between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Father promised to send the Spirit to accomplish the reign of the Son in the earth for the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit will be poured out in the age of Pentecost. And you'll, and you'll see that this phrase, if you look in your Bibles and you track it down, is really only used like this, these, these Greek words, in Acts 24 and Luke chapter 1. The promise of the Spirit. The outpouring of the nose right now. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit will be poured out in the age of Pentecost unlike ever before. That's what Jesus was telling them. A fire that cannot be quenched by the devils of hell or the lies of men or the sinful flesh. A flood that none can stop. There is no dam that can stop this flood. There is no way to quench this fire. The burning bush is a picture of what God is doing in the earth. He is bringing forth His kingdom on the earth by the power of His Holy Spirit. 
Do you think you would be changed without God's Spirit? You who have bumped into your own sin and your own selfishness even a little bit? Do you think you would be changed without God's Spirit? Do you think you would love God's Word without His work in you? Do you think you would have the courage to go forth and and speak of His goodness in this hostile world if it weren't for His Spirit? Matthew Henry says, This power from on high was the promise of the Father. The great promise of the New Testament as the promise of the coming of Christ was of the Old Testament. Do you hear that? The, The analogous Christ came, but now the Spirit comes. We live in the age of Pentecost. The age of the Holy Spirit flood upon the earth. Going on with Henry. And if it be the promise of the Father, we may be, we may be sure that the promise is inviolable and the thing promised invaluable. Bach says of this, when Jesus speaks of the Father's promise, he can only have one thing in mind, the Holy Spirit. Acts 1 picks up this promise and speaks of receiving power and names the Spirit as the gift. The disciples will be clothed with power from on high and the Spirit will come upon them. The gift that Jesus promises from the Father is the Spirit and believers. The Father's promise is also the Old Testament's promise as cited in Acts chapter 2. And much of what we'll see throughout the book of Acts is the disciples opening up all that they've been taught from Jesus about the prophetic fulfillment of the Old Testament. As they go through over and over again and reference Old Testament scriptures about Jesus, can't you imagine during those 40 days, Jesus saying, oh, let's open up to Joel 2, Peter. Peter, come here. Let's open up to Joel 2. And then there's Pentecost Day, and Peter's like, oh, I got this one. Jesus told me about this one, right? And we don't know that for sure, but he says he opened up the Old Testament to them about himself. And so the Holy Spirit would come upon them. Now here's something interesting. Why did the Holy Spirit, or a different way to ask the question, why, why did Jesus ascend on the 40th day? Why did he leave 10 days there for them to wait? Well, we, one thing, we can look back in the Old Covenant and some of the time frames that this matches up with in the life of the people of Israel But even then, we still have to ask, what is this tarrying about? Why does God build this waiting, this tarrying in? Because they have to wait for 10 days. They had to wait 10 days for the whole world, right? Can you wait one hour for your lost family members? See the connection there? This waiting is a time when they were preparing and getting themselves together for the arrival of the Holy Spirit of God. And as we look at the book of Acts, we'll see that often God gives His people a waiting time frame, and He he determines the length, a waiting time frame when we're waiting on revival. And so when you study about revival, the doctrine of revival, not revivalism, but the doctrine of how the Lord God comes in these great floods from time to time. Just like sometimes we get so much rain here that we just wish it would finally stop. Well, it won't be like that when God pours out His Spirit. The blessings will be so big, we'll have no place to store them. This place will not have enough seats for all the people who want to hear the word of God and who want to see their families transformed and see their culture transformed and see the devil destroyed when God comes in his spirit's power. Brothers and sisters, I think we're tearing in Jerusalem right now. I do not think that I'm just saying that in wishful thinking. 
I believe that right now we are tarrying in Jerusalem. Well, we wait on God. See, that's what they were told to do. Wait for the Spirit to come. Wait for the promise of the Father. Wait for heaven's power. The presence of God. The presence of the Father and the Son dwelling in His people. Giving them power. Thy kingdom coming from heaven to earth is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. That's how He does it. There is a river that flows from the throne of heaven. and It's getting deeper. That's what Ezekiel tells us. That's a strange river, isn't it? How do rivers get deeper? They do. God's river does. The news from heaven is always the same, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ reigns and His mighty power is being poured out over the earth and His enemies are on the run and they have no defense against Him and tomorrow the news will be the same. But we, would, we would love to see that great outpouring of God's Spirit, wouldn't we? We would love to be able to sit down and write our eyewitness accounts of these amazing things that God does. Like what we read about in revivals throughout history. People falling down terrified of God's wrath and rising up and glorifying Christ and their lives being changed and all the places of immorality being emptied out and there's no room in the churches so we buy the whorehouses and we buy the liquor stores and we fill them up with people who love Jesus. And the government schools shut down so there's a place to worship Jesus. Do you see what I'm getting at here? This is what you've got to see is happening in the world and it's coming. Maybe we'll see it, maybe we won't. But will we wait on God? Will we have hope? Will we wait? And ten days is not that long, it seems to me. I don't think it would have been that hard to wait ten days. Did they know how long they were going to have to wait? I don't know the answer to that question. I don't see anything yet that I found in Scripture that tells me they knew how long they were going to have to wait. Matthew Henry says, Christ's ambassadors must stay till they have their powers and not venture upon their embassy till they have received full instructions and credentials. Though one would think never was such haste as now for the preaching of the gospel, yet the preachers must tarry till they be endued with power from on high and tarry at Jerusalem, though a place of danger because there this promise of the Father was to find them, according to Joel chapter 2. So, how do you wait on God? And, you know, they had their mission, right? For Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. So they were waiting on God for the power to preach this message to these people. They were waiting on God on behalf of these people. Are we doing that? Are you waiting on God for those in your life? What is, did they pray? We're going to get to that, aren't we? What were they doing? Were they just playing Nintendo while they were waiting on God for 10 days? They were not. They were together before the Lord. And they were seeking Him. And they were waiting for His Spirit to be poured out upon them. So, by way of application, can we do that? 
Can we do that for this little neighborhood right here, for maybe just for Penn Street? Can we, can we just wait on God just for this fellow right here in this little brick house right here? Can we do that? Can we even do that much? For Katie's neighbors, the people that we want to love and get to know and to see the gospel transform their lives and their families, especially if they're outside of Christ, especially if they don't have a place they can call home for their church. So, you know, what are we doing? What are we doing in our waiting for the Spirit? And, you know, waiting can be used as an excuse to be lazy. I'm not suggesting that. Okay? And we see the disciples were active. They were praying. They were together. So this is an active form of waiting. And we're going to look, as we go through the book of Acts, at some of the um, principles of waiting on the Spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, the book of Acts will show us the Holy Spirit poured out, empowering His people to obey Christ's commandments and bringing repentance and forgiveness to the whole world in that generation. And maybe the key question for us as we go through the book of Acts is, do we believe that the Father is still pouring out the Spirit via the Son upon His church and upon this world to this day unto the accomplishment of of global repentance and remission of sins for all of his elect unto complete victory of the gospel in the earth. Do we believe that? How many chapters are there in the book of Acts? Is it 28? I thought so. Thank you, Samuel. So maybe we can see ourselves as like Acts chapter 128? Maybe? Maybe? 129, but you see, the thing goes on. And so as we go into it, we want to be understanding that God is teaching us and encouraging us to continue in this great, great commission that he's given to his church and that he's promised to give us power from on high as we give ourselves over to him. We can expect to see him with us and to bless us in this endeavor. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we do indeed want to be consecrated fully unto this great commission that we would not only be those who have received remission of our sins and who are walking in the joyful path of repentance and sanctification together, but that, Lord, we would be living out the call of your church to preach this gospel of the kingdom to all the nations unto the expression of Christ's kingdom of grace unto all the earth, hastening His kingdom of glory. In Jesus' name, amen.